So I remember when we were driving, driving in your car. Speed so fast, it felt like I was drunk. City lights day out before us, and your arm felt nice wrapped around my shoulder. Welcome to What She Said on 105.9 The Region. I'm your host, Candace Sampson. Well, we're deep into February now, which brings us celebrations of all kinds of love, from the romantic vibes of Valentine's Day to the cherished bonds of Galentine's and Family Day. And with the day stretching longer, there's an added spring in our step, encouraging us to embrace the outdoors and boost our mental well-being. This month truly injects hope into our lives, and I am here for it. Today's show is a tapestry of love in its many forms, the good, the challenging, the familial, and the hopeful, intertwined with discussions on health and compassion in law. Here's what's lined up. To set the tone for Valentine's Day, I'm excited to have Chantal Landreville join me. As a Canadian author and certified love and relationship coach, Chantal is on the cusp of releasing her debut book, Raise Your Love Signal. We'll delve into the art of attracting and sustaining love, offering insights for everyone, no matter your relationship status. Anne Brody is back with a selection of entertainment that's as thought-provoking as it is bold, featuring films that explore complex emotions and relationships, from how to have sex to fitting in and sometimes I think about dying. Valentine's Day isn't always about hearts and flowers, as Jaspreet Gill from the York Region Centre for Community Safety will share. We'll shed light on their Valentine's Day campaign that brings attention to intimate partner violence, aiming to educate and empower individuals to recognize the signs of unhealthy relationships. We're also tackling a health issue that hits close to home for many Canadians, irritable bowel syndrome. Dr. Christine Palmay from Care to Know is here to offer her expertise on IBS, providing valuable insights into managing this prevalent condition. Parenting is an evolving journey, as we all know, and Allie Payne joins us to talk about breaking generational cycles. It's about choosing the parenting patterns we want to pass on and those we wish to leave behind, forging new paths for our families. Lastly, I'm excited to explore the concept of trauma-informed lawyering with Leanne Goldstein. With her extensive experience, Leanne is redefining legal practice by prioritizing her client's mental well-being, making the legal process more empathetic and supportive. So join me with an open heart and mind as we jump into these engaging conversations together, right here on 105.9 The Region. Valentine's Day is just around the corner and love is undoubtedly in the air. To celebrate the season of romance, I'm thrilled to welcome Chantel Laundreville, a Canadian author and certified love and relationship coach to what she said. With the upcoming release of her debut book, Raise Your Love Signal, a guide to attracting and keeping the love of your life on Valentine's Day, Chantel is set to offer transformative insights for those navigating the complex world of love, whether they are single, dating, or in a relationship. So let's dive into a conversation about love, growth, and the journey to authentic relationships. Welcome to What She Said, Chantel. 
Hi, so nice to be here. I'm very excited. Thank you. I'm thrilled you're here. I, I would really love to hear a little bit about your really unique journey from the wine industry to be becoming a love and relationship expert. That's a good question. And I think that um, when I think back or look back at the journey today, I'm, I'm, it only made sense. So I've been in the wine and I was in the wine industry for over 20 years. And one of the things that we do is you're always working with people. It's my, my, I was in sales. So the, the, I think the ma the main key component of having the opportunity to develop relationships with people and breaking bread all the time as we're tasting wines, <laughs> entertaining, I would always end up hearing incredible stories from people and becoming this natural therapist without even realizing it. Um, because I love to listen and I'm fascinated with just humans in general. So it's amazing to see when you take the time to listen and you're interested in people, people will literally vomit their lives to you. <laughs> so this was kind of like a really natural thing that came to me. And I was on the sideline, always very fascinated with anything that had to do with self-development and growth. So I would attend and read and uh, try anything that had to do with personal development, basically, and apply it to myself and to the people around me. So when COVID happened, I went from traveling every other week. Uh, I, I used to, to do export sales uh, internationally to being home all of a sudden. And I always knew I wanted to teach, but I couldn't quite figure out how I would make it come together and when I met my amazing man, which took me 18 years to find through all my own personal struggles of being single and finding love, that's when the flash came to me saying, wow, thank God I actually learned everything I learned over the last 20 years of being single and working on myself. Because it's one thing to attract the right person. That in itself is a mission on its own. But making sure you are able to sustain and be in a healthy relationship is a whole other thing. And I realized we've never been taught anything about this. So that's when I was like, okay, I want to really teach people how to be in relationship, ideally before going into relationships, since the mission to actually get there is already a struggle in its own thing. So I created raise your love signal. I started doing some beta coaching groups and everything kind of fell into place a little bit quicker than I had planned. And I finally made the leap and left the industry last May to focus on this a hundred percent of the time because I was so pulled. And this is when we always say people search for their calling or their purpose. Here it is. This is, this is what I'm, uh, I'm really happy to share with people. And uh, you, you know, you touched on something there that, you know, a lot of people really struggle to find love, especially later in life. Was there a pivotal moment or change in thinking that led you to find your true love? Uh, yes, I, I would say it was a series of events, uh, including one that I finally realized why I kept attracting because my, my pattern was always attracting non-emotional available men. And I couldn't quite figure out why. And when I dove deeper into the kind of work that I was doing, I, I did this specific kind of therapy and that I understood. I lost my dad when I was two years old. So I finally put one and one together to say my subconscious mind registered that, you know, being in love with men represented them abandoning you. 
and or a form of rejection. So it was a way for me to protect myself, being in control and making sure that I would always <laughs> attract emotionally avail- unavailable men was a way for me to stay in control. And when I finally got the aha moment on that, then it was like, how can I start rewiring my brain of 38 years of age to change that? Because this is the thing when we've been doing things for such a long time, and then, and then you have the awareness of what identifying what the problem is, you don't change that overnight, because it's, it's so wired in us. So I took, I would say about five years to kind of like start to change how I I went about things and change all of the habits that I had had and thinking outside the box. And I would also say that I changed my views on what I thought was love. Uh, We are very programmed to think that love is Disneyfied, rom-com. So we're looking a lot for those butterflies, that lust, that excitement. And I realized that that's, that stuff hasn't worked for me. So I decided to try something new and really date outside of my comfort zone. And it made a huge difference. And you talk a lot in the book too about sort of common misconceptions about love and relationships. Can you share a couple of those? Yes. So as I mentioned a little bit is that we are in love with the idea of being in love. And the love that we have been taught, which is very rom-com and Disney is not enough to sustain a long-term committed relationship. Now, when we meet people, we often get wrapped up in the lust, the excitement. We just want to close that deal down. We want things to happen as quickly. So we don't take the time to actually think, how am I going to grow and evolve with this person? I always say we often make it about the person, right? We always think of, oh, yes, I want I want him to be six foot four. I want her to be uh, sexy and blonde. I want him to cook. I want her to be funny. I want him to dance. I want her to be financially off. But we don't think, how am I going to grow and evolve with someone? And some of those things, you need to give yourself, both of both people, time to build that trust, to build that safety, to build that that getting to know each other, to know how you can grow and evolve. And I always ask my clients um, prompt questions like, how do you want someone to show up for you if you get sick or you do have financial issues? How do you want, what are the value system that you want to have uh, if you're raising kids together? And this is something that I see so much with people. They end up having kids and they don't really have the conversation about how do we see this going into the future? How do we want our kids to be raised? And it causes obviously a lot of conflicts. And needless to say, if you don't have a solid relationship from the start, bringing kids (laughs) into that is just going to be a serious mess. So I would say that number one for me is really the idea of what we think love is all about. And the misconception that it should all always be this rom-com butterflies. It's what about getting to know someone and allowing yourself also to um, give the time to open your heart. And people want everything yesterday. We live in a world where, you know, we're so used to having, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, immediate gratification. On yes, on yeah. demand. <laughs> and uh, I, if, I, if I, I love to use myself as an example, I was very I had a very protective heart. It was very difficult for me to be vulnerable. And this is something I had identified and started working on. 
before I got into my relationship so that when I, I would be in a relationship, it would be easier for me to navigate through that. But this didn't happen overnight in my own relationship. We've been five years now in, and it's, I would say that I've experienced just in the last year, a full, full open heart on what it is to really be and feel safe and not feel that I have to do everything on my own because I was that high achieving independent type A personality. And this is something that was built with time. So I think that the fact that everybody wants everything right away, you know, when you start dating, you're like, okay, what can I do to impress them? I'm going to, you know, wear the perfect outfits, get my hair done. And I think that as we get into the relationship, we get lazy and stop doing those things. And that's where they actually need to start happening more. What if we didn't give ourselves 100% at the beginning and slowly <laughs> show who we are and do all these kinds of things as we are growing together, right? Well, Valentine's Day is always a hard time, whether you're single or, you know, in a relationship struggling to keep it al the love alive. So where can people find your book, Chantel, or connect with you? Because I'm sure you're also sharing great advice on your social channels. Yes. So they can find me on my website, which is www.raiseyourlovesignal.com. I am most active on Instagram, which is my name, Chantal.Landreville. I am throwing a, if you happen to be in the city of Toronto, a Valentine's Day party. Come and single, <laughs> come and mingle it. Come mingle if you are single or even in a relationship where we will be launching my official book, Raise Your Love Signal, a guide on how to attract and keep the love of your life. Wonderful. Okay. I'm going to put all the links for that when this goes live on the blog post on the website after the podcast goes out. So thank you so much for joining me today, Chantel. Thank you, Candice. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. It's another week of looking at new entertainment with Ann Brody, and there is a definite theme today. Uh, lots of sex, Ann. Well, you know, we like that. <laughs> uh yeah and but really sort of out there discussions about it much more than I'm certainly used to from my generation but I love it and I'm here for it. Yeah that's true. That is so true. So let's talk about it. So how to have sex is the first one. All right. Now this is an English film um and it's uh Molly Manning Walker. What a superb script and film it is. And when you when you begin to watch it, it's like, well, whatever. These three young kids have gone on vacation from England down to uh, Greece just to whip it up and have fun. And, the, you know, they're so superficial and they have they wear the clothes that their generation expects of them, i.e. skimpy and 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 they drink and that's about it. Well, you know, we did that, too. But there's sort of an extra kind of uh, laissez faire about it. Um, anyway, so one of the girls, uh, the youngest and the most vulnerable, she's actually, she's raped twice by one of the boys and he is so nonchalant about it. And it's just, you can hardly believe it's happening until it happens. 
and it, she shuts down. She completely shuts down. Um, and one of the other boys and her girlfriends realize that something happened to her and they, and they, and they help and everything, but it's just this world that's created in which they're operating. That's sort of, um, it's youthful and it's today and it's shocking. It seems like not a lot is happening, but sort of like, as in a couple of the other films, everything is happening. It's just very subtly done. Um, and these sequences look completely unrehearsed as though these girls are actually living these things. That's why it's so clever and so wonderful and a great film for both kids these days and parents to watch. Okay. Um, the other one that has a heavy uh, focus on sex is fitting in. Yes. Well, we meet a girl who has an unusual situation. She has no womb um, or vagina, and she's got to figure out what her options are in life. Uh, she doesn't have a period, of course. And uh, her male doctor is, you know, he's kind of harsh with her, tells her to get real and face things, um, gives her exercises to do. Well, she's having this sort of uh, really nice, close relationship with uh, a guy I just love, Pharaoh Wunatai from Reservation Dogs. And um, she panics when the idea of sex comes up. Um, and at a party one night, word slips out what is happening to her. So now she's under judgment by all her school friends. It's it's a very uh, moving film. And you really, I, I don't know if I know anyone who's been in that position, but they deserve every bit of compassion and help and guidance that they can get. And it's a rallying cry for these kids. Now, interestingly enough, um, it was uh, executive produced by Janelle Monet, uh, but it's a Canadian film. So it's really worth seeing. All right, excellent. And the other one that really uh, caught me this week was Sometimes I Think About Dying with Daisy Ridley, which is a real shift from the Star Wars yeah. role she played. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my goodness, yes. So she plays a woman in Seattle who is who has a really held-in personality. And at work, she doesn't say anything, and she tends to stare at the ceiling and out at the ships on the shore that are docked and her office is very bustling. They know what she's like and they try to, um, no, they don't try. They accept her as one of them. And she has a date with one of them. And then she says the wrong things and sort of goes back into her shell. And then she, she has sort of an awakening and she says to the guy, do you wish you unknew me? And so from there, she, this awakening springs into her bringing donuts into the office, as simple as that. And then she has a dinner party and she begins to flower. And it's the most wonderful thing. Um, and it just shows that we have to have uh, uh, compassion for others. And if we're like that, we have to have strength or as she had some sort of awakening to show us that life is for living. And that we may be on a wrong path, but we can fix it. So there's so much in this. And it, I love it. I love it. We have time for one more, actually. So can we just touch on Suncoast yeah. really quickly? Yes. Um, Laura Linney plays Bad Mother of the Year to this uh, young Doris, who uh, Nico Parker. Now, 
she is completely overshadowed by her brother who is nearing death's door. He's a young kid and he's, he's completely comatose. They take him to a care facility. Her mother abandons her at home because she's going to sleep next to her son every night. And she's so rotten to her, to her daughter. Um, so her daughter decides to act out and she has parties at home and uh, her mother catches him <laughs> coming in the door and the kids are half naked because they're playing strip poker and drinking beer and smoking <laughs> and smoking dope. And, it, you know, these things happen. So she, uh, she freaks out. Now, meanwhile, the daughter has made friends with Woody Harrelson's character, who's out protesting the unplugging of a young woman in this care, same care facility. So he gives her some guidance, and eventually the mother begins to see the truth behind her behavior. And it's powerful. It's really powerful. Now, that's on Disney Canada starting Feb 9, and it's uh, it's a mixed bag of emotions. You're going to be up, you're going to be down, but that's life. Absolutely. There's a lot of life in this week's entertainment. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and of course, you've got more over on what she said talk.com, including a review of <laughs> hundreds of beavers, which looks like the most bizarre movie. And so I just I encourage people to go over and read your review on it because it looks so weird but funny. Anyway, Anne, thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Candace. Valentine's Day is a time we think of as synonymous with love and affection, but as we'll see in this interview, that's not always the case. Joining me is Jasper Gill from the York Region Center for Community Safety, here to discuss their innovative Valentine's Day campaign aimed at raising awareness about intimate partner violence and offering support to those in potentially dangerous relationships. Through a series of poignant Valentine's-themed poems, the campaign seeks to educate and empower individuals to recognize the signs of IPV and understand that not all love is safe. Welcome to What She Said, Jespreet. Hello, Candace. Thank you so much for this opportunity to chat. Oh, I absolutely had to have you on um, when I was reading into this a little bit. So can you tell us more about the inspiration behind the Not All Love is Safe campaign and how it aims to address intimate partner violence through social media? Absolutely. So what most people don't know, except those who work in the field, is how pervasive intimate partner violence is. So the reality is that one in three women will have experienced this, have experienced or are currently experiencing it. So that means every one of your listeners knows at least one person who has lived through this or will live through it. So knowing this reality, it was really important to me to take an opportunity like Valentine's Day, which is all about love and romance, which is beautiful and great. But what if that relationship that you're in is not a safe one? Because we can't understand, uh, most women don't understand, don't know that there's a dif difference between uh, love and love that's masquerading as power and control. 
So in these coming days, what we want to see is we want to take all that, the pink and red hearts and that's meant to celebrate love. We want to take that and be able to shine a spotlight on IPV and let people know, let survivors know that if they're, it's okay to question and think about the relationship that you're in. I think, you, you know, a lot of people think of IPV and they think black eyes and and being beaten up, and you mentioned something really different. It's it's it is about power and control that masquerades as love, and there's a lot of manipulation that can happen as well. So this campaign features a series of really powerful poems that sort of juxtapose those traditional Valentine's imagery and and words we hear and see uh, against the harsh realities of IPV. So how do you hope those poems will impact those who read them? Oh my. My first, my first hope is that every survivor who encounters that uh, little video gets that message that you are not alone. That's my goal for our, all survivors, because IPV, abusive individuals, their power and control is predicated on making sure that the, that the woman, the survivor, feels isolated. She's disconnected from family and friends, made to feel alone. So they alienate her from all supports. So there is no one in her ear except that partner and everything he is telling her. So my hope is that they realize and they know they're not alone and they can see themselves in some way because every survivor's story and experience is different, but that something in one of these poems can resonate and maybe they can reach out. I'm really blown away by that stat of one in three women in Canada have experienced IPV. What are some of the common misconceptions or red flags that people should be aware of in their relationships? Uh, Well, you're right. The one in three is astounding. It's crazy. And this this is a global stat. So it's us in Canada. It's in the U.S. It's in um, England, Australia. Like, it's everywhere. This is, like, I just want to say that intimate partner violence is the most hidden and unacknowledged form of violence there is. Why? Because it's perpetrated against women. So uh, I'll pause there. And um, some of the things that you can look for, well, are, are you being shamed? Are you being demeaned in your relationship by your partner? You know, saying things to you like, you're stupid. You're a terrible mother. No one, uh, no one would hire you if you went out to try to get a job, those things. Because no healthy, loving, safe relationship puts down the other partner in that way, shames them, humiliates them in that way. Uh, The other piece, is your partner the only person in your kind of social circle, your life? Where are your connections with family and friends? Has he somehow alienated you from them? by telling you that they're against you, uh, essentially manipulating your relationship with them by telling you a bunch of lies, which in those beginning days, you believe. So that's the thing to remember with abusive individuals. They're, as you had said earlier, very manipulative. And they know, they know how to present themselves in such a way that they can carry the woman away with these, you know, messages of love. Oh, I just, I just want to be with you. Oh, don't, don't go out with your girls tonight. Just, I, I just can't bear to be without you. Just spend time with me. So in those early days, what seems like love 
really crazy, infatuated love. Oh my God, he can't get enough of me. And we as women just kind of like take that in, lap it up. Well, really, it's setting the stage to isolate the woman, have her not dependent on anybody except him. And I think, sorry, I just have to say too, as well, I think it's important to point out here that, you know, some of these men are being instructed on how to do this with some of these, I'm putting in quotes here, influencers on the internet who actually give them a handbook on how to do this to women. It's horrifying. You're right. And we we can see this globally. It's not in any one part of the world. We can see a general rise in misogyny. In every sector, women in, in journalism, women in the sports sector, women in politics, women just in an everyday context, trying to carry through in their lives, experiencing violence. And it's not always physical. It can be emotional. It can be verbal, psychological. But all of those pieces wear a woman down. The whole point when it comes to power and control is to decimate a woman's self-confidence, her sense of self, so that she never leaves. You're not capable. If you question everything and you don't have that confidence and you live in such fear internally, of course you're not going to leave. So this is happening in York Region. And so for women who come across this in, in your area, what resources and support do you offer to individuals affected by IPV? Yeah, thank you for that question. We have a very unique service model. It's based on the Family Justice Centers in the U.S., and we are, in fact, the first international affiliate of the Family Justice Center Alliance. And so what our particular service model does is it provides a centralized intake for survivors. So they come to one location and they can access multiple services. So we bring together the justice and social services um, service providers all under one roof. So we take care of that. We will do the case management. You just let us know what, it, what your story is, what you're going through. We work with you to figure out what you need. And then with a survivor's consent, we connect her to those services because we're partnered with all of those services that provide um, needed supports to survivors. How can members of the public engage with this campaign and help spread awareness about the issue of intimate partner violence? Oh, my God. Come and like it. Retweet it. Repost it. Ask us questions. Inquire. Um, have these conversations with your friends. Like We need to be talking about this more openly. Like I said, this is one of the most hidden forms of violence. And the way it works, which is really frustrating to me, is that here is a man who perpetrates the abuse, but it's the woman who feels the shame. And that our society still feels that it's necessary to ask the question, well, why doesn't she just leave? Instead of asking, why does he abuse? 100%. We have a minute or two left. Do you want to read a couple of the poems? Would you like to? I would. Oh, okay. I would love to, if you don't mind. No, I'd be honored. Please. A little shove here and there, just a slap or two. It's him that is doing it, but he's blaming you. Do you want to read the next one? He's seeing red. Your bruises are blue. If you aren't allowed to leave, how safe are you? So impactful. How long did you work on all of these poems? Well, this was a collaboration with uh, Tamara Cherry from Pickup Communications. Love Tamara. And we've had, we had, she's absolutely brilliant. Um, and we had some amazing sessions where we were talking about this issue. And she's very passionate about this issue as well. So I thank her 
for a lot of for being the creative force behind bringing this uh, campaign to life. Well, I hope that this inspires people to uh, go to your website, learn more, find your social channels, and obviously spread this wider than just York region because it is very powerful and very informative. So where can people go, uh, Jaspreet, to find out more? Please go ahead and visit our website at yrccs.ca. Certainly visit us on Instagram. Our handle is yrccsyr. We're also on X. You can find us... um, just Google us. You'll find us. All right. Uh, I'm going to put all of these links uh, in the blog post that will go out following uh, this going out on podcast. So thank you very much for joining me today. And I hope this uh, this campaign really um, gets to the people who needed to hear it the most. I do too. Thank you so much, Candice. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. Today, we're diving into a topic that affects almost one in five Canadians, irritable bowel syndrome, or IBS. With Canada having one of the highest rates of IBS worldwide, it's a condition that deserves our attention. I'm joined by Dr. Christine Pommet, a renowned family doctor from Midtown Toronto, who is here on behalf of Care to Know to help us understand IBS. Welcome back, Dr. Pommet. Thanks again, Candice. Happy to be here. Can you start by explaining what irritable bowel syndrome is? So we don't fully understand. What we know is that there's um, an imbalance in the gut-brain axis, meaning the biofeedback from your gut, something's happened. And there's a couple of uh, supposed theories we think could be hormonal, stress. There could be an imbalance in the gut biome. I know probiotics. I speak ad nauseum about probiotics to my patients. Um, Dietary factors, but really... Uh, It is a syndrome, and that's what I most emphasize to my patients. So some patients will experience constipation, some patients will experience diarrhea, and sometimes the specific treatments differ uh, at the tail end of a diagnosis. But really, holistically, you know, it's about understanding a patient's personal journey. The reality is, is IBS affects quality of life. People are upset, they're miserable, they're in pain, they feel out of control, they feel unwell, they don't want to go out, they don't want to socialize, there's body image problems, you know, fear of food that may trigger, not wanting to travel, the list goes on and on. So you can see how this syndrome also affects mental health, physical health, Uh, it really, really is complex. And what are some of the common symptoms then of IBS and how can individuals distinguish these symptoms from maybe other digestive conditions? Quite hard. Um, Usually it's by process of elimination, right? We rule out any other sinister things. So making sure your thyroid's functioning, in some cases having a colonoscopy and abdominal ultrasound because there's other mimickers. But usually at the end of the day, testing, you know, thankfully comes back normal, but unthankfully doesn't lead to a diagnosis. And uh, with IBS, uh, the constipation subtype, people are more constipated, oftentimes going days without bowel movements, feeling bloated, gassy. Uh, There's a diarrhea subtype as well um, that is quite the opposite, triggered by food and stress. Um, And I think that 
you know, part of the frustration from a patient is there's not one set of symptoms. Everybody's so different, which also makes it equally as frustrating for healthcare providers. Uh, so documenting your symptoms, being aware, you know, understanding regular bowel movements, having those in-depth discussions with your healthcare providers that are sometimes uncomfortable or absolutely necessary. And 80% of IBS patients are women. That's astounding to me. So why is this so prevalent in women? So number one, women access doctors a bit more readily. So I think that's probably a little overreported. However, there's a hormonal component too, um, which is, you know, different for females. Lifestyle, you know, there's mental health changes. I think truly that is, it is, I wouldn't say it's overreported in females. It is underreported in males. I don't think males show up at the doctors as readily as they should. Hopefully that will change. Uh, but we do think uh, there is a hormonal component. All right. And if people want to know more about IBS and how to manage it, um, we're going to avoid Dr. Google. And where is the best place to go? Well, you can use Google. Just put in caretono.ca. Uh, credible site. I am so excited uh, about the expanding uh, viewership of this site. We, it's medically um, approved. We have experts like myself that are providing input. It's evolving. Topics are changing. And the un- information is being updated according to updated guidelines. I know everybody's saying everything's changing every moment, but medicine is science and science evolves. So care to know.ca, it's free. Sign up. You get healthcare information emailed to you, and the site is full of of many, many different topics that are pertinent to our uh, listeners. Yeah, with so much misinformation swirling around, it's important to go to credible sites. Um, And you, of course, uh, as usual, uh, you've gone a little deeper into the subject for us, and people can find that on whatshesaidtalk.com. And you will be back next month because we're going to be discussing rosacea. See you soon. In this next segment, we're taking a look at a topic that is sure to resonate with many of us as parents, breaking generational cycles of parenting. It's about recognizing the patterns passed down through families and consciously choosing which ones to continue and which ones to leave behind. Joining me now is Allie Payne, our resident expert on the parent-teen relationship, who will share her insight on how we can forge new paths in parenting distinct from those we may have experienced growing up. Welcome back to the show, Allie. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a while, and I'm excited to get into this topic. So can you explain what generational cycles of parenting are and why it's important to be aware of them? Yeah. So it's essentially how our brains are wired. So if you're listening to this because you're feeling frustrated and you're beating yourself up, I I really want you to hear this. Your brain is wired to repeat what you know, and actually more specifically to repeat what you learned between the ages of five to seven, but at least before eight years old. So a generational cycle is something where um, it's a, it can be very, very subtle and nuanced. It could be big and overt. They are patterns of both thinking, behavior, and therefore inclusive of feelings as well. Reactions, responses that are 
um, woven into all of your relationships based on what you learned at home, what you learned in your familial environment, and are now showing up in your life in all of your relationships. But specifically, we're talking about now that you're a parent parenting teens. Some of those you might be super proud of and love, and some of them might drive you crazy when you catch your mother's mouth falling out of your words and going, and then you feel so frustrated because that was never what you wanted to do or catching yourself doing a specific behavior that you don't want and don't like, but aren't sure why you keep doing it. It's because it's wired, hardwired in your unconscious brain, not your conscious. So it doesn't have to do with intelligence. So what are the first steps that a parent can take to start the process of, of changing or breaking free of these generational parenting uh, hangups, I suppose? Right. So the key to know is that good intention is not enough. And I don't mean that as a cut. Good intention will not create the impact you want because your brain does not have miraculously the structure to just know what to do. So I, here's my sixth stage process that is a non-negotiable to actually creating tangible, lasting change without the whiplash effect where you have to keep going back. Okay. Number one, plunge. You must have daily immersion, 15 minutes a day, okay, 15 minutes a day that matches your specific learning style, audio, reading, video within a proven system that is like a journey. It takes you through a process that aligns and builds over time, okay? So like random content from books and social media and and all of this stuff that it's just going to create confusion for you and your team. Um, because none of it, and some of it even counteracts itself. So that's confusing. Step number two is processing. You have to have a safe environment to ask questions with expert guidance, because you've got to be able to deepen your understanding, uncover all those old patterns, which we half the time don't know until they show up, and then shift belief to shift your perspective. And also writing, journaling is a huge part of that process, because otherwise you're just bouncing ideas around in your head and you're the only one there. And learning in isolation is not powerful. It, we know that. Um, then you need practice. You've got to have a safe and engaging place to consistently try new tools to build your skills with consistency and confidence and guidance because without that daily practice and accountability, your intention, again, it's falling flat. And, and I know how desperately you want this. But like throwing stuff against the wall it, to see what sticks, it just confuses your team. Um, you get less of what you want. And then you have no support to how to like adjust specifically to your situation and try again. So once you get plunge processing and practice down, then you go to the next three steps, which are also not negotiable, but are really linear. You must be able to change your awareness. And this takes time. It's moving from knowing different after the fact to thinking different in real time. And that takes consistency. It is not negotiable. It is like a bucket that must fill and overflow before you get to move to the next step. And parents stop there because they beat themselves up because they know different. So they just should have known better. And then they walk away thinking it must be them. Not true. That takes time. Then you got to move to action. Like now you're taking your awareness of when the opportunity is to change and you got to put it with what? Like a proven tools so you do different. And again, you've got to have those first three, you've got to have support and it takes time. Now you've got awareness is full. 
then your action bucket has to fill right up. But people quit here because parents say, well, no, I'm already thinking different and doing different. And my teen is still isn't responding. So this is stupid and obviously doesn't work. And so, so you walk away and this breaks my heart because good, incredible parents are wanting desperately to make this change, but they quit right before the last step, which is adapt. It's taken all of that until your teen actually adapts their emotions and behaviors to begin um, changing to your new approach that you've developed through all of these steps with consistency. So they trust it's not just a ruse to control or trap them. And you're still likely to stop there because you get a few quick wins and then think, great, I'm done. But you don't have what you need to continue to personalize tools for your situation because your team will continue to push because they will just want to find the weak spot. So that's my six-step process that's absolutely not negotiable for breaking the cycle to take your amazing intentions and get the impact where you're trying to skip from step one to step six. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and it's important, I think, to remember too, you know, you're an adult going through right. this journey. Your child is your teenager is not on this journey with you. They're still nope. going through all of their things and, and it is in their nature to rebel and to push back because they're growing and changing. Yeah. So they right. are going to change whew, so many times over the years. And yeah, yeah, like you said, you have to adapt to what they're doing, not the other mm -hmm. way around. Right, right. So generally, See, I'm, listening. I'm listening, Allie. It, I, I really <laughs> want parents to understand this is possible but intention alone will not get you there. Oh, I hear you. I uh, Listen, my kids are now past the teen years and anybody who is going through it, I feel for them so badly. Yes. So I want people to be able to connect with you because I know personally you helped me through some really, really hard times. And so I, I would like people to be able to connect with you. Where can they do that? Uh, best place is at Allie Payne on Instagram or TikTok. That's A-L-Y-P-A-I-N or my website, AllyPayne.com. All right, Allie. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's always a delight. My cheeks hurt from smiling because I, I know that this works. I know it works. So, uh, so, so I encourage much. people to connect with you. Thanks, Allie. Thank you. Oh, yes, sweet darling. So glad you are a child of mine. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. I'll stand by you. I'll stand by you. Have you ever heard of trauma-informed lawyering? I hadn't either, so I wanted to know more about this compassionate approach to legal practice. In this next segment, I'm joined by Leanne Goldstein, a Canadian insurance and disability lawyer with over 20 years of experience. Leanne's not just any lawyer, though. She's a pioneer in integrating trauma awareness into her legal practice, ensuring her client's mental well-being is at the forefront. She's here to enlighten us on how trauma-informed lawyering can transform the legal experience, make it more humane and empathetic. Welcome to the show, Leanne. 
Thank you so much, Candice. So for our listeners who may not be familiar, could you explain what trauma-informed lawyering is and how it differs from conventional legal practices? So as lawyers, we are traditionally trained to approach legal issues and problems with an analytical mindset. We're taught to be cognitive, intellectual, objective, and to focus on predominantly the facts and not the emotions. Trauma-informed lawyering differs from this approach because it requires us to build a deeper connection with the client and a stronger relationship of trust. It involves exploring and validating the client's experiences, as well as recognizing the impact that trauma may have on their lives and how trauma can frame decision-making, memory, behavior, and emotional responses. So the trauma-informed model essentially involves a significant investment in the client's well-being during the lawyer-client interactions, as well as throughout the litigation journey. In your practice, especially in regards to disability and insurance cases, how do you see trauma affecting your clients? So the interesting thing about trauma is that a trauma response is a neurobiological response. So what that means is when a threat is identified, the amygdala, which is in the brain, prepares the body to respond to that threat and communicates with other areas of the brain, including the hypothalamus, which releases our stress hormones. The amygdala provides us with an emotional interpretation that directs the body on how to respond. And then we also have another part of our brain called the prefrontal cortex that assesses the source of the threat and then determines if the body needs to stay on high alert or if the brain needs to begin calming the body down. So for those individuals who are struggling with trauma or post-traumatic stress, the part of the brain that triggers a stress response may respond disproportionately to perceived dangers, and the part of the brain that's responsible for calming this reaction may not function as effectively. So what we see in our practice is that individuals who are dealing with trauma or who are struggling with trauma responses may manifest with changes in cognition, mood. They may have difficulty recalling things. They may have thought distortions, maybe dealing with anxiety and depression, rage, shame, emotional dysregulation, dissociation, and they may have an intense sense of distrust. And so they may be struggling with recent traumatic events relating to illnesses or injuries that they're consulting our office for, but they could also be struggling with complex layers of trauma that may precede the events that they're consulting us on or may be exacerbated by the events that they are consulting us on. And so the importance of understanding trauma and understanding the trauma response is it can impact how the clients interact with us as lawyers as well as their experiences with the legal system. And we therefore have to govern ourselves accordingly in the trauma-informed model. Aside from getting, you know, your law degree, it sounds like you have to do a lot of upgrading of skills as well uh, to understand the psychology of trauma. So it's interesting because a lot of people say, you know, do you have to have mental health education or experience? Do you have to be someone who is um, knowledgeable in the areas of psychology or trained in psychology? And the answer to that question is no. There's a lot of information that you can obtain either through reading articles and books, attending seminars, but also through the process of engaging with clients 
and learning to understand their inner worlds. That is a predominantly important feature of what we do, understanding the client's lived experience, understanding their inner world, and most importantly, understanding the trauma response, which can be something that you can learn directly from the client or from various informational sources. Do you feel that trauma-informed lawyering is the way of the future then? Because this seems like a much more compassionate approach to the legal system for people. We do. Um, I think what is important when it comes to trauma-informed lawyering is really from our perspective, there's really three main components to it. I like to focus on the components of education, emotional safety, and building trust and empowerment. And you, you mentioned a little bit earlier about how do you gain information? You don't need to be a mental health professional, but you can educate yourself on trauma and you know how trauma sufferers respond. But most importantly, in the world of, of trauma-informed lawyering is creating a safe space. Trauma sufferers have often experienced a loss of a sense of safety and a loss of control in themselves and in their environment. They also often feel a loss of choice. And so they, you know, they might perceive the world as an inherently dangerous place. And so it, I think it's incumbent upon us to create a sense of security and safety where the client can feel connected to us in the process. So it might start with looking at our physical space. You know, how are our rooms designed? Are they intimidating? Are they warm and comforting? Who's present in a meeting? Um, you know, it might extend to how do we conduct interviews with clients? What type of style of information gathering are we using? Are we, you know, using a style that resembles a court process where we're using sort of focused questions designed to elicit information? Or are we allowing a client to let their narrative unfold in accordance with their needs and convey the information to us at their own pace? So the important thing I think to acknowledge and understand when it comes to trauma-informed lawyering is that it is a way to facilitate an emotional journey for the client through the litigation process that is more positive. And so at the end of the process, they come out with a sense of validation of their experiences without judgment, without assumptions, and they have an emotional safety that is built for them, which can lead to a much more positive experience of the litigation process and litigation outcomes. Well, I love this. I think it's fantastic. I hope uh, people listening, in particular legal professionals, uh, reach out to you to find out more. Where can people connect with you, Leanne? So to connect with me, you can connect with me directly on LinkedIn. Um, I do have a presence there and I do post quite frequently. I enjoy engaging with that community. Otherwise, you can contact me through my website, leannegoldsteinlaw.ca. All right. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me today, Leanne. Thank you, Candice. It was lovely to be here. That's it for What She Said this week. Stay up to date with our newsletter by signing up at whatshesaidtalk.com and be sure to follow on social at What She Said Talk on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for videos of these interviews and more. You can also catch me on TikTok at Candace Said. Finally, be sure to subscribe to What She Said with Candace Sampson on Apple and Spotify to catch past episodes and extended podcasts. I'll be back next week with another What She Said on 105.9 The Region. Previous episodes of What She Said on 1059theregion.com.